Let's do this. Grab your Bibles. Let's dive right into it. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part 25 of our series called Life of Worship. We're studying, obviously, the life of David. Uh, I entitled this morning's message, Desire Unbound, When We Can No Longer Say No to Ourselves. I want to begin with some ideas. There are times and phases of my life, uh, periods of my life, when I feel sharp. I feel disciplined. I feel like my life is going the way that God wants it to go and that I'm partnering with him in that. There are times in my life when I feel like I'm on top of it and I'm not behind the ball and I'm pursuing righteousness and things seem very well knitted together. This time in my life is not one of those. Uh, if, you obs- if you observe your spiritual life, you'll notice you tend to go in phases and movements based on what's going on in your life or based upon your own life patterns. And you will notice that there are times when you're stronger and times when you are weaker, times when you're feeling good and times when you're feeling challenged. Uh, these last number of messages to me have been very tough on my spirit because things are a bit looser. And whether it's from uh, tiredness or frustration or anger or whatever it is, uh, those things, uh, I tend to get much more sloppy in terms of the discipline in my life. And so these messages have kind of hit me pretty squarely the last couple weeks, all right? Um, So in saying that, understand I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to us, yeah? Okay. Now... Let me say this, what you feed will grow. Some of you have heard that. I just need you to own it. What you feed will grow. If you feed into your life with Christ, if you sow into the Holy Spirit by saying, yes, I'm going to submit to you. I want what you want for me. I'm going to step back, put away the old man, put on the new man, whatever you want to call it, whatever religious titles you want to put on it. If you submit to God and feed into that element of life, your spiritual life will grow. Yeah. In the same way, if you feed into your flesh, what is your flesh? Your flesh is that part which is outside the will of God, the stuff that God is not pleased with, the stuff God is trying to root out of you, the stuff that you darn well know is against him. Now, it may not be something extraordinarily big. It may be what you deem as small, but make no mistake, there are pieces of your life that are not as they should be. If you feed into those, it will grow. And most of us, for our lives, we like to picture it like this. Well, there is a part of me that I'm not proud of. All right, that's kind of the hidden part of me. If everybody else found out about it, that'd be kind of embarrassing. So what I do is I keep it locked away into a cage in the corner of my life. It doesn't dominate me. It's not the biggest part of me. It's just a piece of me that I'm not pleased with. And what we do is we shove that in the cage and... We feed it. Why do we feed it? Because it whines. We feed it because it constantly irritates and we want it to shut up. So what we do is we throw it a bone and throw food through the door and then slam it shut and we lock it. And we think, all right, well, at least it stopped talking. Now I'm cool to go on about my life. I give it a little bit every now and then. Unfortunately... For some of us, it smashes down the door and walks out. 
and when it finally stands up to its real height, you go, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Now you look at it and you go, there's no way I'm going to shove that thing back in that hole. It's too big now. Ah. When we feed our flesh, sometimes it gets too big to contain. If any of you have ever suffered from addiction of any sort or have lived with someone that has an addiction, you know what I'm saying. Because let's picture it this way. For all you sci-fi geeks out there, let me put it this way. An alien has come into your life, and you've seen it in the movies where it now takes over and it is running the show. It is no longer the person. They look like the person, but they are operating on autopilot. This alien force is now causing it to move and to act. Let me use another analogy. Let's say, for example, you're driving along and speeding and you realize I need to slow down. So you go to hit the brakes and someone cut the brakes. Yeah. So you're hitting the brakes and the car's still speeding. My point is this. The nature of addiction is that when it becomes negative for you, you can't stop. It happens now, please, if you've never experienced addiction, please do not be moronic enough to say to somebody, well, you should just stop doing that. Really genius? I hadn't thought of that one. No, I'm hitting the brakes as hard as I can. They're no longer attached. It's going out of control. That is what we're about to read in this story. When things get out of control and they take you places that you never imagined. But if you think I'm talking to somebody else, I'm not. I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to me. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. When our passions rule us, we die. When our passions rule us, we die. We cease to be the people that we desire to be in the Lord when we're no longer in control. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13? It's page 264. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. Or at least within reaching range. Take one of those out. If you uh, cannot find one, please let me know and we'll try to figure out how to get one over to you. We can all share. Um, we don't necessarily love each other, but we're somewhat nice. So uh, we'll get you a Bible, all right? Second uh, Samuel chapter 13, page 264 in the Bibles under the chairs. And as we begin to read, let me give you a recap on where we're at. If you were here last week, you remember the David and Bathsheba story, yeah? That was kind of one of those ouch stories of, wow, I thought he was the good guy. I thought that he did everything right. He's the life of worship guy, and he writes all the nice worship songs, and he's the best king of Israel. And then we watched him just spiral into a place where you never thought he would go. And he ends up lying and deceiving and murdering and adultery, and you just watch David implode. And God then said, listen, although you have repented to me and I have forgiven you, there are consequences to your actions. 
This story is a consequence to David's actions. That's why it's included. Many people would say, I don't understand why this story is in the Bible. It's very obvious why the story is in the Bible. It ties into the last story. So it's kind of moving along to explain why things went in the nation the way they did. Now, last time we talked, David was about 50 years old. We can assume that he's now in his late 50s. His kids have had a few more years to grow up, and his family is a bit out of control. Okay, so we need to talk about David's family tree, or else you're not going to understand the story. At this point in his life, he has approximately eight wives, right? Recorded eight wives. We have no idea how many concubines he has. What's the difference? Concubines are just like a wife. You can have sex with them. They can have kids through them. They can have their whole family, but they do not have legal status of wife, and they are not considered the same way in political situations. It's like a demoted wife. We do not know how many David has. We do know that in a story coming up, he has enough to leave 10 behind and take the rest with him. So we're at least at 18 wives or ladies that he is involved with on a somewhat consistent basis. Now, it does not mean he is seeing them every day. It does not mean that they're all living in the same house. They are all spread out all over the place, including the children that are born to him through those women. We know that recorded David has 15 sons by this time. We do not know how many daughters he has. Only one is mentioned because women are not recorded in the ancient world. Why? Because what they're focused on is who's going to lead and who's going to be the strength provider and cause the lineage. In that time, they were tracking only the men. So we don't know how many daughters he had. He could have had 30 for all we know. We have no idea. They would only track the men. He has 15 sons. Now, if you have 15 sons and you're running Israel, I'm going to venture to say there's not a lot of quality time with dad. Are we good on that? And absolute power and neglect is a horrible scenario. And his family is out of control. I want you to picture uh, this scenario. As we talk about these princes underneath David, I want you to think in terms of whatever movie you've ever seen where there are kings and princes or royal family way out of control, where because of their power they think they can do anything they want, where they kind of are very about luxury, they don't have a lot going on, so they go around causing trouble. I want you to picture that in your mind. Maybe for you that's like the Shakespearean type movies where you see these terrible kings take advantage of their situation, right? The medieval period, whatever you want to look at, because we're all very clear that nobody abuses power now. So I don't want ever to think that it's that it's a modern thing. It's only in the ancient world. The only key children that you need to pay attention to are this. By the way, nobody can ever see me smile on the radio. So they have no idea that I'm being facetious. All right, moving on. There are really only three kids you need to track on. Number one, the heir to the throne. His name is Amnon. A-M-N-O-N. Amnon. Now, Amnon, it's interesting because his name is like the Lord is noble. It's, it's really ironic. But anyway, Amnon uh, is the next guy to take over for David. And in that ancient world, your oldest son is the biggest deal ever. We all know that from different stories as we've tracked through and we've learned that through our history in the Bible. Oldest son, biggest deal. 
The second son, his name is Kiliab or Daniel. He disappears from the story. For whatever reason, it's believed he either died young, he never factors in again, ignore him. The third, or pretty much the next one in line, because the second one is gone, his name is Absalom. Very important moving forward. He's going to be our primary character moving forward. So I need you to understand who Absalom is. Now, they don't have the same moms. When you have 18 women in your life, you have a series of blended family issues. All right? You have a ton of half-siblings. Half-siblings, as we all know, is that you share one parent. So David is everybody's dad, but they all don't share the same mom. They don't live together. They live in separate uh, areas, and they may not have a lot of contact with one another. Absalom has a full-blood sister from Makkah, their mom. Makkah is a princess, or what later became a queen, in a pagan nation up by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in a city named Gesher. So Absalom's mom is royalty from one nation, and his dad is royalty from Israel. So he's got some serious royal stuff going on, yeah? Now, he has a full-blood sister by the name of Tamar. Their half-brother is Amnon. Different mom, same dad. Cool? We got it all? All right, let's dive into it. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13 Let's just read the first two verses, and you'll understand why today's a little rough. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. I don't think this is going to go well, right? Now we see why there was a warning on the door. Let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, today uh, we are going to be reading about ways in which you worked with this royal family. And Father, things spun into horrible, horrible places. But Lord, for many of us sitting in this room and listening to my voice, Lord, this is not ancient history. This is our history. This happened in our family. This is what we've been going to counseling for. This is what we have stuffed down. This is what we have tried to ignore. I ask right now, Father, that you would hold our hand through this process. Those that have been hurt in the past, that you would bring about healing and restoration. And Lord, those of us that have not yet learned from what we have done, pray that you would bring about conviction that we might be the men and women you designed us to be. We offer ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. This is the second Tamar in Scripture. The first one was in Genesis 38, and she became very famous, and women thereafter began to name their daughters Tamar after her. She was famous for a rather unusual story. It is a story of marital incest. Uh, for various reasons, she was left childless and ended up 
making a ploy, dressing up in a costume, and having sex with her father-in-law. She had twins. She had two sons from him. One of those was named Perez. That man that she had sex with was very famous. His name was Judah. Judah is famous because Jesus is of the lion of the tribe of that guy. That is Jesus' lineage. It goes through them, down through David, down on to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Tamar was heralded out because David's lineage came through her line. So people began to go, wow, she's important. That's another redemption of a not-so-great situation. All right? So women were being named. This is Tamar 2. Okay? She's now in our story. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. I would like to change that word. I understand that the Bible translated as love because it's, it's kind of like the English word where we have in Hebrew, it covers a whole variety of environments. I would like to use in this the phrase lust, covet, obsession, right, infatuation. We can call it whatever we want, but please do not call it love. Because what you're about to see is not love. Uh, Amnon may well have said it is love in his own mind, but we all know that we are very good at deceiving ourselves. We think a lot of things that aren't true, right? And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her or became obsessed with her, lusted after her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. He is obsessively sick. He is out of control. So we need to think about how is he justifying this in his mind? How do you get to the place where the whole world is open to you? You are the next heir to the throne. You know full well that you can have anybody you want. But you've become so obsessed with your sister to have sex with her, knowing that it's probably not going to happen, but you can't let it go. What is going on with this guy? You go, where in the world would he get the idea that he would not ever be able to be with his sister? Well, I don't know. Have you heard of Abraham? He's the father of the whole Jewish nation. Remember his wife's name was Sarah? Guess who she was? His half-sister. All right. So it's in their history, in their lineage, but that was before the law was laid down. The law is laid down now in Israel through Leviticus is that you cannot do that. There is no sexual contact allowed between family members. That is anti-God's law. And if anyone has ever found out to have done that, they will be cut off from all of Israel. They're not allowed to be part of the nation or the community. So he knows that that's not going to work, but somehow he allows this to sit in his heart and he obsesses over it and obsesses over it and obsesses over it. And he is completely convinced that he will not be satiated until he has access to her. The problem with that is society's never going to let it happen. Look at the next phrase. Why? For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now notice this is not a phrase that says, and there's no way they could be together. What does the phrase say? That he couldn't do anything, what? To her. Interesting phrasing. Why? Because in that day and age, uh, ladies, I need you to understand that in the ancient world, being a virgin was everything. 
In our society, it's not only sometimes frowned upon or made fun of, and you may well receive persecution for it. In that world, and still in the Middle East and many other countries, it's a big deal. But it's a big deal sometimes not so much for moral or ethical reasons, but for societal reasons. It's an arranged marriage environment. What that means is, is that your dad is in control of everything. So he wants to be able to hand you over to a family in the best way. And he cannot marry you off if you are not a virgin. Remember, in that day and age in Israel, if you are caught fornicating or having sex before marriage, you were killed unless you fix the scenario. So there was no such thing as women running around society that were not virgins unless there was special circumstances. They would wear different clothing, especially if you were in the royal line, because to marry into the royal line was a big deal. And so for that, the king would have his own daughters wear certain clothing that marked them out. They were not allowed to hang out with the opposite sex. They were cordoned off in a special area. So no, Amnon did not have access to her physically. He couldn't even get next to her. She was in a whole separate segment of society. All right? It says, but Amnon had a friend. If you can't figure it out, hopefully you have a friend. Ah. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. He's family. He's David's nephew, and everybody in the story, he's their cousin. Okay? So he's a cousin to Absalom, Amnon, Tamar. He's in the family. But he's inserting himself into the royal family and becoming part of the intrigue. All right? Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Be careful who your friends are. And he said to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So, Prince, you look bummed out every day. What's going on with you? Why don't you tell me about it? Maybe I can help you out. He wants to work himself into the royal family more and more. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, pause. What was he supposed to say to him? I mean, maybe you haven't read this story before. What's he supposed to say to him? So now, all of a sudden, you're asked this question. Hey, I'm completely obsessed with my sister. What's, what's your response to that? Let's hope that this man who, that word crafty also means wise, let's say super wise guy, now has access to talking to Amnon's life. What is he supposed to say? Well, it depends on his personality, right? So if you want to go kind of judgment guy, he should have said something like this. What is wrong with you? No, this is a horrible idea. You're being a moron. Knock it off. And let's focus on something else. If he's Mr. Grace guy in his personality, he would say something like, all right. First of all, no, we can't do that. And we need to redirect our focus this direction. I understand you're going through a difficult time. I understand that somehow this has become cool in your mind. It's not okay. And I need you to go this direction. Is that what he said? No, of course not. Let's look at what he said. And Jonadab said to him, well, lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. Any advice that starts with a lie, bad advice. Yeah? 
Lay down in your bed, pretend to be ill. When your father comes to you, David, say to him, hey, let my sister come and give me bread to eat. Prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. What's happening? Two adult men are plotting the rape of a young, innocent girl. That's it. Two men, not one. Two guys are involved in this. No one's checks and balances. No one's holding anyone accountable. They're all bought in. It says, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come out and make a couple of cakes in my sight. Then I may eat from her hand. His son is lying to the father. Has David ever deceived and lied to somebody else? Yes. Is it coming back and biting him? Yes, it is. This is a done deal. It's going to go badly from here. How do we know that? Because he already lost the battle up here in his mind. Every battle is waged and fought in your head. By the time you acted out, it was already won. The battlefield of the mind that goes on is extraordinary because your actions will not do what your mind has not already concocted. If you want to fight this issue, it will all be done within your spirit, within your head, within your mind, within your will. These things must be contained. It's why the New Testament says we must bring every thought, what? Captive to the obedience of Christ. Because if we do not, and we allow certain things to dwell and settle in there, you're done. That's it. If you obsess over it and run scenarios about it and figure out a way to do it and own it and figure out how it can happen and this is what should go on, you're already sunk. It doesn't matter whether you walked out your front door. It's only a matter of time before something goes horribly wrong. You'd be surprised where compromise takes you. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Great. Thanks, Dad. Uh, David's clueless. Is that his fault? Well, we can excuse him and go, he had no idea. All right. But Absalom figures it out. And he's on Amnon. How come everybody else seems to know what's going on? Jonadab knows. Amnon knows. Absalom knows. But David doesn't know. Listen, it doesn't mean that it's David's responsibility. It's saying that David sends his daughter into a very, very horrible situation. And he didn't know. And it's possible that he didn't know because he's busy at work. He's just got to run a nation, and he has a pretty big family. It's hard to pay attention to everything. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house. Why? Because that's what she was asked to do. And... She's just doing what a servant's heart does. She's carrying forward. All right. She's completely naive and completely innocent. Where he was lying down, she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Why did he ask her to make a meal? I think it solves two things for him. I think it solves the issue that at some point he's going to want her to get near him like a trap. And the other one is it takes her a while to make it. Do you understand he's watching her the whole time? This is Predator 101. This is a complete setup. This is not good. All right? 
So she finally took the pan, emptied it out before him, meaning she served the meal, but he refused to eat. Of course he did, because it wasn't about food. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Why? Because when the heir to the throne says, get out of here, everybody gets out of there. That's the way it works. But now all accountability is gone, and we have nothing left but wolf and lamb. Right? Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into this chamber. Because think about it like an apartment. She's cooking where she can view the bedroom, but she's not in the bedroom. He's laying down in the bedroom. Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand, meaning I'm too sick to feed myself. I need you to do it. And Tamar took the cakes she had made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her. He grabbed her and said to her, have sex with me, my sister. Now, this same phrase, come lie with me, is almost identical to the scenario that happened to Joseph with Potiphar's wife, if you remember that story. She was obsessed with him. She kept thinking about it every day. She finally grabs him by the clothes and says, come have sex with me now. The difference between that scenario and this is physical strength. That's it. Joseph broke away, left his cloak behind, and ran. I'm going to assume, and I will guarantee you, that is exactly what she wants to do. It says, she answered him, what's the first word? No. That's the right beginning. Now, here's what's intriguing about that. There's an instant pressure in that environment to say yes to anything the heir to the throne, no matter how weird or psycho it is, there is a peer pressure to say yes to anything that authority figure tells you to do. But for some weird, unknown, supernatural reason, she has the ability and strength to say no. That is the appropriate response. Now, not all of us, I don't think I could do that. I don't blame anyone that doesn't say no. I'm just telling you right now. I'm not maybe not that strong. This woman happened to have an ability to say no. Then she goes on. No, my brother, meaning I'm going to turn the mirror around. You realize who you are. Yeah, you realize this doesn't happen, right? You realize you're way out of control. Yes. No, my brother, do not violate me. Do not hurt me to help yourself. Do not harm me to make yourself feel better. Do not do this outrageous thing, this thing that unseats society. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Hey, look at me for a second, Amnon. I understand that you seem to be glazed over, but I want you to think about this for a minute. Where in the world am I going to carry my shame? Because either we get married and everybody looks at me weird... Or I'm cast out of society. Do you know what you are about to do? Do you know the sheer weight of what you're about to wreck in my life? I want you to own this. But maybe you're not looking at me anymore. As for you, she says, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Meaning, okay, clearly it's all about you, yeah? All right, let's talk about you for a second. You don't think that people aren't going to lose all respect for you, no matter how this rolls out. You think it's not going to get out? Of course it's going to get out. And when it gets out, it's going to wreck you. You think this isn't going to jack up your whole plan to become king? You think this isn't going to derail your vibe for the throne? You're willing to give all of your life up for this? 
How this woman had the ability to say all this, I have no idea. Now, therefore, please speak to our dad, the king, for he will not withhold me from you. I understand it's illegal in this nation, but clearly our family has always bent the rules. Listen, there may be a possibility that I can be with you. I understand that you're not thinking right, but is there any way I can bend your mind into something better than what's about to occur? But he would not listen to her. Why? Because he's not driving the car. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He raped his sister. I don't think that was how everyone thought it was going to go. Why do people abuse like that? Well, why do you abuse? I get it. This is all distant, right? This has nothing to do with you? No, it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with me. Let me explain why. Abusers, not all of them. I don't know every abuser. I don't know every motive. But I know why sometimes I abuse. Abusers tend to abuse out of their own pain. And what happens is when they have a pain or a craving or a problem... They make everything about themselves and they use other people for satisfaction. People cease to be people and they become an object to an end. You go, I'd never do that. You already have. You probably did it today. How do we know that? Because the difference between you, me, and that guy is one of degree, not kind. Why? You cut off somebody in the freeway. You dang well know you did it. And you did it because they were slow, and you cut them off. What you just said was, you are no longer important. This is about me. I will cut you off because I need it. I don't care what you need right now. You're an object to me. Okay? Let me tell you another story, one that absolutely embarrasses me. On Wednesday, I was writing an article. I was working at a coffee shop in Folsom, and... Uh, I was writing an article for um, a, magazine, a local magazine, and I wrote the article, and I went, and I went, huh, that was kind of that's kind of witty. <laughs> I knew it wasn't awesome, but I was like, ah, pretty good. And I immediately, physically, stopped typing on my laptop, and I looked around the room. And what I was looking for is I was going to grab somebody to proofread it for me. And I'm that kind of guy. I don't care who you are. I'll stop you and ask you to do something, right? And so I was like, well, you know what? Some of the gals that are working at the shop, I'm going to say, hey, real quick. It was super short article, 500 words. Real quick, can you take a look at this and tell me if this is legit? And I realized something. There was only 20% of me that needed a proofreader. I didn't need a proofreader. What did I want? Affirmation. Everyone in that whole room became an object to help me feel better about me. I was completely cool with stopping them from their work, their lives, and what was going on to them because right now I needed affirmation and I think they can help me out with that. Realizing who I actually was, I hit send immediately. Why? Because I don't think it was going to go well, and it wasn't going to lead me to being a stronger man. I'll tell you that. 
You think that's not you? When you gossiped the other day, you made someone else an object to make yourself feel better. That's what just happened. You used somebody. You abused somebody. I know you justify it in your mind, and you're all cool with it. But you're becoming a monster. That's what's happening. Why did you abuse? Because there's cravings that fire up in your life. I need something. I need something. I need to feel better. I want people to affirm me. I want people to say that I'm okay. I want people to bond with me. I want to give them some secrets. I want to do, right? You let that go unchecked. You let that sit in there and obsess and grow and grow. And when that thing comes breaking out of its container, what's it going to do to you? It's going to take you in places you never imagined. And you're going to become someone you never dreamed. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. I see. So now that he's spent physically, everything turns on him because it was not what he imagined. And that hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out of my face. She said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one you did to me. Listen, we can salvage somehow to where I can have some honor. People may look at me sideways, but I won't be an absolute outcast. What did he say? But he would not listen to her. Of course not. It's all about him. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. You know what the word really is in Hebrew? Get this thing out of my sight. It's not woman. They put that in to explain that he's talking to a woman. Get the trash out and lock the door so she doesn't bother me anymore. How do you do that to a human being? You don't. You do it to an object. When people are reduced to objects, you can do pretty much anything you want says now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed so his servant put her out bolted the door after her and tamar put ashes on her head tore the long robe that she wore as signs of mourning laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went okay i need you to hear something many many people in this room have been abused i want you to understand something after this event tamar was absolutely innocent, pure, and honorable in God's sight, just as much as she was a half hour prior. It did not change her nature. It did not change her and make her dirty. It did not do anything to her spirit. It was not her fault. It actually had nothing to do with her. It had to do with unchecked passions of a monster. Not her. God does not look at her different. God looks at her the same. And she is acceptable in his sight. I understand that Satan has messed with you, and I understand that maybe your scenario was different, and I understand that for a very tiny select few of you, you physically, literally, and verbally asked for it. I'm going to tell you this. It's still not your fault. I don't care what you asked for. I don't care what you were clamoring for. I don't care what scenario you put yourself in. It's absolutely unacceptable what they did to you. They did not 
need to take advantage of that situation and move forward with it. And they will be held accountable for it. So no, if you have been abused, you have been abused. It is not on you. It's on them. God knows that. And sometimes he's spending the rest of your life convincing you of what he already knows. Her brother Absalom said when she got home, has Amnon, your brother, had sex with you? How does he know that? Because he can put two and two together. All right, hold, hold your peace, my sister. Suck it up. He's your brother. Don't take it to heart. Let it go. Guess what? He's lying. Why? Because he's just convinced that he's going to kill him. And he's not going to let it go. He's asking her to do what he will not do. So Tamar lived a desolate woman, unmarried, childless, for the rest of her life, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was angry. Oh, he was very angry. Really? I bet he was. What did he do about it? Nothing. Why? Interesting, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this line was added by a copyist. Quote, but he would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. Is that spoiling? Is that what we're looking at? That regardless of the rape of his sister, he would let him go because he favored him. Is it spoiling or is it the fact that David doesn't feel he can do anything because after what he's done, he has no moral stance by which to discipline? Either way, his son gets away with it. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Let me tell you the story. Absalom says to his dad, hey, I'm having a party. It's sheep shearing time. You know, it's kind of payday when we pay all our crew, and we're going to have a huge kind of big party kind of kegger thing. Hey, how about you come? You, seriously, the king, you, all your crew, why don't you come down? I'll, I'll throw a party for you. King David says, you've never seen us party. First of all, if we all show up and my crew comes with me, you have no idea how big that is, we'll bankrupt you. So no, we're not coming. All right, well, that's fine. How about sending Amnon in your place? He's the next heir to the throne. Why don't you send him in your place? I'll have all the boys out. It'll be a boys' night out, man, all the brothers, right? Let's all have a big party time. Will you send Amnon? King David looks at him and finally can put two and two together, and he goes, why do you want to hang out with him? You don't even like that guy. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Cool, right? Water under the bridge, whatever. So is he going to come or not? David says, sure. They all show up, all 15 boys. They all show up. Right before the party, Amnon says to his servants, when I give the word, kill him. I've been waiting two years for this. I know killing the heir to the throne is a big deal. Blame it on me. Be strong, be courageous. It says, and when he was merry from drinking, anytime the Bible mentions somebody hammered, something bad happens next. <laughs> Are we all clear on that? When he was hammered, Amnon gave the word, go. Go slaughtered right there all the boys jump up they think it's an assassination plot they all bail out and run home david receives bogus information that all his sons have been killed he falls down on the ground starts panicking and crying out to god and then the crafty guy shows up and goes don't worry about it 
Only one's dead. How does he know that? He's in on all this stuff. He said, don't worry about it. One's dead. Amnon's dead. It was Absalom. He's always planned on killing your son. You didn't know that? Huh. That's weird. How are you so out of check? All right. Anyway, don't worry about it. Sure enough, they all come riding up. They're bawling and crying. I can't believe this happened. Absalom just killed Amnon. And Absalom bails out and flees. What happens? Where do you run when your dad's the king of the whole nation? You run out of the nation. Remember who his grandfather is? Remember who his mom was? He runs to Gesher, the Aramean kingdom, where he has lineage on that side. Runs outside of Israel. Look up top by the Sea of Galilee on the map. Right there. He goes out and runs all the way up there, 88 miles away. Flees away and hides there for three years. Meanwhile... Joab realizes this is a nightmare for the nation. This is going to upset the economy. It's going to cause a big problem, right? And Joab is all about politics. Joab's David's right-hand man, his commander-in-chief, right? So he says, David, we got to fix this thing, man. First, you're the heir to the throne is dead. Your second one's dead. Now Absalom, who's supposed to inherit your throne, he's way out in a pagan kingdom. we got to solve this, buddy. David's like, I don't care. Now, there's a word that says that David's heart went out to Absalom. That's a bad translation. The accurate translation is, and David wanted to go take vengeance on his son. He wanted to take him out. So he said, keep him away from me. I don't even want to talk to him right now. He killed the more precious one, the firstborn. So Absalom's out there for three years. Finally, Absalom has enough. Goes up and sends a message to Joab. Dude, we need a meeting. Nothing. Second time, dude, we need a meeting. Nothing. Fine, I'll burn your fields down. He burns down Joab's field. Joab's like, what are you doing? He's like, I told you, I need a meeting. <laughs> what? I don't want to do this anymore. You could have left me over in the kingdom where at least I was somebody. Now I'm here in the middle of nowhere doing nothing, sitting in a kingdom. My dad won't even be near me. For two years now, either we reconcile or he kills me. I'm not living like this. All right, I'll talk to your dad and see what's up. Dave Absalom says, kill him or pardon him. One of the two. David says, fine, bring him in. Gives him the kiss of welcoming him back into the family. Problem is, it's five years later and he doesn't like daddy anymore. I need you to see one last story. Before we close, take a look at verse 25. Chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Remember, he's going to be our next big guy in the story. What's important to know? This guy has some serious good genes. His mom was a princess or a queen, and she was selected out for her looks, and his father is David, who, if you remember, at the beginning of David's story, everyone said, men and women, man, that guy's good-looking. Remember? They kept saying it to an awkward degree. Yeah? Why was Saul selected as king? Because he was good-looking. Understand, this is like a soap opera, right? No ugly people. Have you ever noticed that? You watch the show and you're like, so no one has skin blemishes then in the whole world. That's really weird. 
When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He'd cut it, and the weight of his hair was five pounds. If you can grow five pounds of hair in a year, that's a different sort of dude. Here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture Fabio. (laughs) I can't believe it's not butter. Right? (laughs) This is our next king is you have this guy who's everything's luscious right and he walks around all right he's super stud guy with the long flowing hair that he cuts my hair is too heavy we must remove it all right whatever all right but all israel likes a good looking king all right now they were born to absalom three sons you'll find out all three die in childhood and one daughter whose name was Tamar, named after his sister. That's Tamar number three. She was a beautiful woman. Let's close with this thought. If we do not deal with the obsessive flesh in our nature, it's going to wreck us. I understand we talked about sex a lot today, and if you are naive, please understand this. Open up the newspaper and look at what people are willing to do and to lose for a sexual rendezvous. And you tell me it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Regardless whether you like it or not, it's a powerful force. But understand, this is not just about sex. This is about Anything that you're struggling with where you crave to use other people for your benefits. What will we become? What will we feed? Will we feed to our nature in the Lord? Or will we feed to ourselves?